People are just more accessible now. They're able to get the CEOs on the phone. You know, you don't need to be a Mark Mobius with a Franklin Templeton juggernaut behind you of cash. Welcome to the Blue Continent Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Pertzer, International Research Coordinator for the Blue Continent Alliance, the Blue Continent Podcast, and your Blue Continent. What this program is about, this podcast, what makes it unique is, is finding people who have knowledge or expertise or have worked to address in a sustainable way a lot of global development issues. We have a special treat for you today. We have Gavin Serkin, who is a really inspiring global entrepreneur and journalist who gets as much pleasure from traveling, meeting people, and talking about big ideas in the most unlikely places as I do. He's the author of Frontier, which the Financial Times said was a must-read, and he's the founder of New Markets Media and Intelligence. Kevin, are you there? Hello. Yes, hi, Brennan. How is the Virgin Islands, I've got to ask you? The weather is brilliant, as long as there's a breeze. You know, it's funny, I've commented before to people around here, one of the reasons I think that the uh, cases of COVID is so low here, I think it's because the electricity is so expensive. This will be interesting to you as someone who studies emerging markets, frontier markets. Because electricity is so expensive, people build their lives very often around not having air conditioning. So you have windows and breezes coming through and you spend more time outside and all of that. But if it were less expensive and everybody just used the AC, you might find there are higher incidences here. It could be right. It could be true. They're doing pretty well anyway. (laughs) <laughs> That's good. That's good to know. Good for you, anyway, being on the island. That's one of the reasons I came down here. It's one of them. I figured this we're in for the long haul with this thing. It's going to be maybe another eight months or something. And certainly that's had a big effect on developing markets and on your work and, and your mobility. I assume that you're someone who travels a lot. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, obviously, well, you being the exception, having made it to the Virgin Islands, but for the rest of us, not too much traveling at the moment. It's sort of strange as well, because it has taught me that you can get a huge amount of access online that you actually don't need to travel, although it's very nice to visit these places. And you do learn a lot from walking around and talking to people on the streets and that kind of stuff. But if you want to, particularly thinking like an investor or even a journalist, there's a lot of information you can get to. And and people are just more accessible now. When I've spoken to, I was on the phone with them. They invest in lots of different countries, particularly in Southeast Asia. And they're able to get the CEOs on the phone now, whereas that just wouldn't have been possible without booking it weeks in advance and negotiating travel and meetings. So that, in a way, is sort of a democratizing force within investing because, you know, you don't need to be a Mark Mobius with a Franklin Templeton juggernaut behind you of cash to spend on foreign trips. You know, you can be one guy who is interested in finding off the beaten track companies in parts of the world that are interesting and probably get more access now than you ever could before. Although I have to say, in my experience, just being someone who's adjacent to actual investors, a lot of when you're in a small and developing country and emerging markets, people do want to make time for you if they have a chance because they know that you may have a key to something that they're looking for. They do make time for you typically. 
Yes, yeah, that is true. And it's often from the most unexpected places that you get the nuggets that give you the ideas of where to focus on, because it's not it's not talking to companies that have a vested interest in spinning one story. It's often about the person in a slum who has found a way to make things happen in their community. And you're thinking, well, hold on a sec, if they're doing that, then why can't others do that? And that's how that's how great ideas come about. Those are my favorite stories, honestly. They really are the best. Yeah, exactly. When I was just a grad student, uh, one of my first experiences was I went to Micronesia and in Pohnpei. And even though I was just uh, researching some economics, import, export, I, within just the couple of months I was there, was I met the president, I met all the governors, I was invited to like a, an ADB conference on the national economic future of the country and debating their grand plan. If I was in New York City, you can't get that kind of access, but you get out to a place like that, suddenly, just if you're anybody who's anybody, they're looking for people with ideas and people with influence. And it's a great opportunity for somebody who's maybe young and looking for a way to get into international development and go to the middle of nowhere, right? Like theoretically, and just start shaking hands. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, in my book, Frontier, you know, there were 10 countries that I went to and each one I was accompanied by a big investor who had a constructive idea on that country. Not necessarily that it was a slam dunk buy right now, but long term they could see potential and they were watching that country. The one that really eluded me and I was traveling there with Wells Fargo and this was in 2015 before some of the scandal about Wells Fargo uh, really hit. And we just couldn't get one meeting in Ghana with anyone of note. And the first night we were there, we went to a bar with somebody who we'd been introduced to by mutual friends. And pretty soon he was introducing us to all of the government clique and all of the companies that we needed to know. And we were just in the group. And that's what it takes because until they know somebody who knows you, you've got a mutual trusted acquaintance, they're not going to bear all to you. And you call them up from London or New York or even the Virgin Islands and <laughs> tell them, you know, you want to find out about what they're up to. They're, they're going to be very cynical and doubtful. Sure. It's uh, the hardest part is always just getting that first person to open that door for you. And it's it reminds me, actually, I don't know if you ever read Kurt Vonnegut. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite like passage from uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater about the Money River. You're, you remember this? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just need someone to show you how to get down and show you where the Money River flows. And once you get there and you find it, the most important rule is do not slurp loudly, you know? So, <laughs> yes. You're drinking from the Money River. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't, don't let others in on it. Yeah, I had so many questions about that. I mean, you wrote the book five years ago. And in the book, you mentioned these 10 economies that you had been following and evaluating. And I know that they kind of hit a, a big bump in the road with Burma. They, it became a human rights issue, of course, the way that they were handling the Rohingya situation. However, uh, many of the others, can you talk about the predictions that you made at that time and if you feel that they've been validated? 
Yeah, I tried to apply this very scientifically and it, and it came from back then I was running the emerging markets desk at Bloomberg and, you know, we were very kind of Bloomberg machine, you know, it's all about what the Fed's going to do tomorrow. And it's very hard to look into the middle distance and see which countries are really on a long-term constructive trend. But that's the job of fund managers. That was the starting point was to interview over a hundred different fund managers who had all made some pretty good bets over the past few years, you know, seeing the bricks before they were the bricks and, you know, the ones that had made good geographical plays and to find out from them which countries they considered as the ones that they were always looking in. It might not be the right time to jump in right now, but which ones had an underlying story going on. So in that context, that's looking on a 10-year horizon, at least, 10 plus years. In that context, Nigeria comes out number one. Now, Nigeria has extreme bumps in the road, not been a happy place to put your money. But this is the country that will overtake the USA to become the third largest nation on the planet by 2050, according to the World Bank. So it's going to run India, which overtakes China, India, China, Nigeria. If you're looking at that kind of demographic, then something has got to happen for Nigeria. The geopolitical forces, the interests of the world is aligned on making sure that Nigeria doesn't split up, that it does stay cohesive, that it's a, an economy that isn't going to spread conflict or poverty in the region and more broadly. So that's kind of the, the big underlying trend for Nigeria. Number two is Vietnam. And Vietnam is sort of the, you know, it's an ironic story of how communist country that most liberal capitalist heart-beating investors would normally be wary of given the communist credentials but in this country communism means stability for an investor so stability that this government has stayed in place for a long time isn't going anywhere and actually is relatively stable in terms of the policy of yesterday being relatively predictable for tomorrow that's what markets crave stability right more than anything like to, for growth Exactly. That's partly why we're in, why we started off in the COVID crisis in such disarray in the markets with huge plummeting across the globe. And, you know, with the fiscal stimulus, it adds stability. That's surety that people are going to have a steady income to keep on spending for businesses to keep on doing what they're doing. Well, you can imagine here in the United States that we're about to come to some reckoning because at the end of this month, or even before the end of the month, a lot of the stimulus that was created earlier this year is running out. We have a moratorium. There was a rent moratorium. People didn't have to pay for anything, but now it's like three months of rent are due for people and their benefits, their unemployment benefits are expiring. So you have this real reckoning that's coming, going to be hard. In a developing world context, you've got not necessarily, you take Africa, you know, there's a mix of local governments providing stimulus, but there's a huge amount that's been coming in so far from the IMF and World Bank. And the thing to what is how much more of the debtor community gets involved in that. So we've got talks going on with the private creditors for debt relief. Debt relief is a major thing because for Africa, most governments spend more on just servicing their debt, not paying off their debt, just paying the interest than they do on healthcare. So you imagine what the budget boost of not having to worry about that interest payment for several months means for being able to open up the stimulus machine.
Is there any extent to which the more rural nature of some of the countries and lack of development have insulated? Oh, okay. I need to turn off Siri. <laughs> Siri's listening to everything and goes, So glad that was your end. Yeah. But do you think that there's some insulation to more rural communities that never develop such a reliance on the international system? If you just sat in your home and, and you were a subsistence farmer, you're still able to grow your subsistence crops. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely. But the thing to think about is that even if you're a subsistence farmer, to an extent, you do rely on supply chains which are being disrupted, whether you're talking about global supply chains like reliance on machinery coming in or from outside of the region, or you're talking about getting your crops to market through having refrigeration or having storage, having trucks to take your take your goods to market. One of the groups that we work, so we, we work with a number of New Markets Media Intelligence. Um, we work with a number of different companies in different emerging markets, different frontier markets. For example, is in the Niger Delta, you know, a very troubled area of, of Nigeria, famed for the oil production, but also the conflict that's created over the years. And it's a company called Alluvial Agriculture. And what they basically do is group together smallholder farmers in neighboring plots and bring those farmers the storage, the access to vehicles, the seeds that can be verified as, as actually working that kind of thing and the farmers will pay back out of out of their harvest so there's they don't need to foot up the cost and um, exactly it's kind of like a cooperative except that the farmers own their own land and nobody's going to take that away from them and they're motivated to make a profit from the yield by having more productivity and what we've seen from that is more interest coming in particularly given the COVID crisis and the threat to food security to try and help projects like this. So Alluvial Agriculture has various different offers to provide funding. Accompanying this is this wave of impact investing and ESG, environmental social governance trend, which really, you know, I call it a trend, but it's more than this is no fad. This is something that has sticking power. I'm pretty sure it's the fastest growing asset class in the world right now. And that is looking for ways to make a difference to society, to environment. If you think about agriculture, to go to your point, for many countries, this is the biggest employer. This is the biggest productivity area. If you want to start to help alleviate poverty, to improve food security, then agriculture is clearly the place to begin. Yeah, for sure. What country was agriculture located in? Nigeria. So it's Niger Delta in Nigeria. But we see similar projects in East Africa in particular. You know, I know the project where you were working on in Myanmar, you know, which is a fascinating one we're on forest sustainability. There's a lot of different projects that are focused on sustainable environments, which feeds through to agriculture. So that kind of relates to what I'm doing out here in the Virgin Islands. I'm trying to work with agricultural producers and the economic, a, a territory where 97% of food is imported for no good reason, honestly, and trying to see what, what can be done in terms of perhaps uh, aeroponics, for example, to produce more of the food here at a good rate. And that obviously there's an impact on the overall wealth of uh, farmers here. And if you can just claim some of that revenue locally. But also there's 
what the way it relates to Myanmar project is they have a lot of mangroves that have been lost here. And what I learned from those folks in Burma was a method for increasing the survival rate and the strength and everything else of the mangroves. If you do get the power to replant them, we can talk about the potential for a carbon credit. I don't know if the U.S., even a territory, can be part of that project, but I think we can because it's done in Hawaii as well. There's a way to take innovations that are relevant in one place and see if they can be adapted to needs in other parts of the world. Yeah, and it's so interesting because you do find these parallels in Myanmar's mangroves to go back to Nigeria is tomatoes. Nigeria has the biggest tomato crop of just about any country, and yet they import their tomato paste from China. Because tomatoes are such a staple crop, it's like a staple food. The suya dish, the spicy chili tomato dish with meat, and you look at the stall holder that's, that's producing that, that's cooking that on his stove, and, it, and he's using tomato place from China. It just doesn't make sense. And on the carbon credit, America is a big force in that, but China is an increasingly big force in the carbon credit market. Its expansion is something like 10 times what the US is. So that we're seeing a lot more environmental development that's relevant to financial markets going on within emerging markets, because these are the places where we often have a view that, you know, perhaps emerging markets, the laggards in a lot of environmental development, like you think of the squeaky clean Scandinavian countries or, and the big polluting India and China, but you know, on a relative scale, these countries are doing sometimes a lot more in some industries. It's not across the board, so I'm nuancing what I'm saying, but you are seeing a huge amount of stepping forward. Carbon credit, carbon trading is an example of that really taking off in China right now. Well, I suppose that can be a very, very good thing. So I noticed one of the other countries I wanted to ask you about was your feelings on Ukraine. I spent two years as a Peace Corps volunteer out there, and I saw a country that had great resources. It had lots of young people, had a lot of smart people. My impression was that you have that the corruption that had existed for so long there as the, the only thing really holding him back and the old guard that needed to become pensioners, let the younger people take higher position was the main thing that was holding up that country. Yeah, I have a kind of a vested interest in Ukraine because part of my family heritage apparently comes from there. I think that you're right. It is corruption that's holding Ukraine back. There have been advances in this with the European input into trying to hold up transparency. It's been uh, two steps forward, one step back, but we are still moving forward gradually in tackling corruption. It is one of the highlights of emerging markets, definitely, you know, whether you're looking from a debt market's perspective and the debt reduction talks that have made the fiscal situation in Ukraine much more manageable, the IMF deals, the policies, and the peace dividends, you know, but another country in the book is Sri Lanka, which has also had a bit of a checkered development since the end of the civil war. But when you've been in turmoil, as we've seen in Ukraine, when you have that relative stability afterwards and you have other countries wanting to help to make sure that the country doesn't slip back into conflict, there's definitely a peace dividend and fairly reliable strategy is to look at countries that are coming out of conflict, whether it's Syria, whether it's Lebanon, 
looking around the world. Egypt is another country which hasn't been in war but has been through these coups and looking at that period afterwards as a time where you can get super impressive growth. Yeah, I'd say that it's really quite amazing and graceful, I guess, that Egypt has not had an armed conflict, a civil war or anything. They were able to avoid that. They didn't break in factions that were so clear-cut that way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's always had a very strong military, and that's not been far from the foreground. You know, whichever leader you look at, with the exception of Mohamed Morsi, who didn't have that military backing, which is why we saw him very quickly toppled within a space of a couple of years. The current leadership is a former military leader who has quickly taken over to, to strong arm, moving away from any any cannot call Egypt a democracy. You cannot think that it's got anything like free will, but from an economic perspective, much like I was mentioning with Vietnam, with communist control, it is stability. So for good or for bad, from an investment point of view, that is going to improve your chances of getting growth. Now, whether you feel comfortable in that situation as an investor of supporting that is a different discussion. And, and you know, some investors will approach it from the perspective that, well, putting in money into a country enables a population to improve. And it's all about bringing people out of poverty, giving people a better life. And from that, you might get more of a wave of protest. You might get people that you might get liberal values coming up and others that would just say, well, you shouldn't be investing in the kind of way that we would think about apartheid South Africa or something like that. You know, the best example of the peace dividend that you describe, I've seen it was in Rwanda. I think that what is the market like there as far as are, are investors just coming right in? Is that something that you're observing? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Rwanda is a little bit like the situation we're talking about with Egypt. Rwanda is not a good place to be if you happen to be an opposition leader. A lot of those have been slammed up in jail. There is not freedom of speech. They have lots of very strong representatives in the West that uphold what Rwanda is doing because it's a booming economy, because it looks liberal. But you scratch below the surface there and there's a huge undercurrent of political unrest there. Okay, that's, not, that's something I didn't observe in Kigali. Yeah, if you try talking to the opposition leaders there, the opposition groups, and that is the situation. But from an economic standpoint, from an investment standpoint, it's definitely one of the stars of Africa. If you look at the bond market, during the time when I was a journalist at Bloomberg, you know, we covered this incredible bond deal from Rwanda, which was raising, I think it was like half a billion dollars, which was a lot of money at, at that time, to build a convention center, basically, in Kigali. And you're thinking, well, how can you spend so much money on a convention center? Surely this is a white elephant. But bondholders went along with it. And I was thinking, you know, pretty soon, you know, in a couple of years, this is going to look like the Mozambique fishing price. The bond that went on to this supporting Mozambique's supposed fishing industry. But nothing has blown up. The convention center has been part of Rwanda sharing the world that is a tech hub, that this is a country that can support very innovative companies. And if you look at the convention center, it just looks like this multicolored beacon. Yeah, the whole country is proud of that center, you know? Exactly, it's like a mothership that pulls in everything around it. So you can see that that has worked.
you know, so, so Rwanda definitely is, is a success case. The reason that it's not in the book is Rwanda is relatively small population. And the countries that I focused on were the ones that had a big enough population that they could sustain companies and development without needing to rely on friendly relations with other countries. That said, Rwanda has very strong transport links, increasingly strong now since the airport development. So within an hour, you can be in a population center of many hundreds of millions. So Rwanda is in a good geography for that. It's actually it's ironic you mentioned the strong transport links there because I was traveling two years ago. My plan was to go from Nairobi and I went by bus all the way. I was going to go all the way to Congo, uh, DRC, and I get all the way to Kigali, and, and that was going to be my last stop. And all I wanted to do was across the border into Goma and then fly to Kinshasa. And there were no scheduled flights. Like, you just, just show up, and you're supposed to hang out there until whenever they decide they're going to fly. And they, they couldn't take my money or guarantee me a seat or anything. And the idea of just camping indefinitely in Goma, waiting for an opportunity to go to Kinshasa, didn't appeal to me at all. <laughs> I've been there even in Nigeria, where just flying from Abuja to Lagos can be as much of a lottery of when you actually see the flight arriving. Yeah, what I had to do was, even though I had taken bus all the way there from Nairobi, I had to fly from Kigali to Nairobi, and then from Nairobi to Kinshasa. So <laughs> I spent like a week and a half traveling by land for absolutely no damn reason. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the biggest impediments to intra-Africa trade, is just being able to get from one country to another country without having to go via London or Paris Another company that we work with is, is a group called AZA, AZA, which is they focus on basically making intra-Africa trade easier by reducing the cost of converting currency, which traditionally has tended to go via the dollar, or typically, or now via yuan, perhaps, or the euro, and just saying, why can't you trade a Ugandan shilling for Kenyan shilling and do deals? But that company, because they're operating in many different countries in Africa, the logical thing was to be based the headquarters in Africa. It just makes travel time so much more difficult. CEO is now in London because she's able to then get to where she needs to go in all the different countries much more efficiently, which is a sad indictment of the way that Africa transport links have developed. And you know what we should have seen earlier this year before the COVID pandemic delayed it was the Africa continental free trade area developing, which was about breaking down tariff barriers, about trying to improve ultimately in the way that the European Union has transport links. If you think back to the European Union, it was very used to be just as hard to get from a middle-sized town in England to a middle-sized town in France. But now that, that is much, much easier. In the same way, the ASEAN region in Asia has made it much easier to go from Vietnam to the Philippines, although it's still relatively difficult. Back further is Africa. And I think that that's the development that we will see because the the African continental free trade area is still going to happen. This has been put back a few months, but there's enough force behind it. This is, I would say, going to happen in the next one to two years. And I think this will make a difference. This will help to make the economic planning uh, just a bit more cohesive. Sure. 
for people that don't study developing markets and haven't traveled in these places, it's hard to imagine the infrastructure that's not there because people just take it for granted. I was at the shores of Lake Victoria years ago, and I'm looking out and I see where there used to be this bridge that there was a rail bridge from the colonial times, basically, that would go across the lake and like you could take a train like across the lake. And you think about the transport opportunity from, I think, like Mwanza and Tanzania to get to this part of uh, Kenya that it would link through at one point. And just to look at how something that once existed and that could be a tremendous tool for commerce, right? And it's just not there anymore if it had been maintained or respected. But of course, there are so many political issues that are at the heart of all of these things and the fighting for the scraps that were uh, left by the colonials and just the power vacuums and the wars and everything else. And it's just, it, it's just sad. It is sad. And we have seen some rail building going on in Africa, but it generally tends to be funded by China and it tends to be government to government loans, which don't have the forces that are needed to make the railway sustainable. So if you look at these railways, very often the fares, even relative to other costs, even relative to going by road, are just ridiculously cheap. And there's various reasons for doing that. Yes, countries want to encourage mobility, people to be trading with different parts of the country, accessibility. You know, definitely there's reasons to make sure it's affordable. But it's also important for big infrastructure projects to be able to be ultimately self-funding within a time span of maybe decades. But you want to get to the point where you can pay off that. And this is why we're seeing China come in with these golden handshakes with different governments and often and they effectively end up owning the railway, owning that port, owning that infrastructure on a 99-year lease, which then, you know, has the danger of turning into military establishments and whoever knows what. Sure, they're all of the I have to say, though, like, on one hand, in from the American perspective, we see China and their building of this network, right? The new Silk Road and the, the Pearls and all these projects throughout the world. And like, there's this defensive feeling as an American who probably as a British person, you say, look, this was a, a network that we established for our, our empire, right? Our economic empire. And someone's challenging that. But I can't think for a second that if I were the receiving end of one of these countries, even if it's a bad deal, it's infrastructure that's sorely needed. And you, it's hard to say, no, it's not like the U.S. is out there going, no, take our deal. We'll build a, a, a port for you. We'll build a railway for you. No, we're not. You know, we're not, <laughs> nobody else is saying that. There's got one offer on the table and nobody else has made an offer in the last 25 years. And you say, okay, I'll take it. And I've seen these projects in various ports. I saw the building of a port at Hambantota in uh, Sri Lanka, and they were working around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They looked like ants. I stood at the top of this mountain and it was just like, and it never stopped. And they finished like a humongous port, one of the biggest I'd ever seen that they actually like moved land to create this whole thing and they built it in weeks month or something and i'm thinking when people come to negotiate these deals with the chinese 
and they're like, well, we want you to hire half local labor or something like that. No way. I mean, maybe they'll hire local people to do some auxiliary task or, or bring them food or something like that. But these, there's no way that, that anybody else in the world could build with the speed and the precision that the Chinese do. Now, I'm not saying that as a validation of the ecological effect of what they're doing, because I'm sure that it's terrible. But it is fast. It is efficient. It is probably as cheap as anybody could build it. And I mean, you got to respect that from a Fordist uh, point of view. I don't know. <laughs> well, exactly. And you take the example of Habentota. It's no coincidence that President Rajapaksa is now back in power. He was the guy who executed this. It happened to be very conveniently in the place where he grew up in his hometown. And, you know, he's got everything to gain from this. So this is why the China to the Chinese bilateral deals are very cozy, very good for governments and very often not so great for the people of the country unless they're properly and effectively monitored. And China isn't necessarily the bad guy in this. They're um, a negotiator who will get the best deal that they can. And if a government is going to roll over and say, well, take our land and we can have it for 99 years, they're going to say, thank you very much. That's very useful for us. If the government is going to say, well, you can do this, but we want to have control and we want to have at least two thirds of the workforce being domestic and you can bring in your people expertise, but we want them, we want our people trained up, then there's a good chance that the Chinese will accept this. And, you know, you look at the debt negotiations going on within the current COVID era with Africa. You know, President Xi was last week, I think it was, or the week before, said that he would write off interest-free loans that were coming due from Africa this year. And it was seen by the Chinese as this grandiose gesture, you know, that leadership, it makes them look very good. But in actual fact, this was a pretty small portion of what China was actually owed, is actually owed by Africa that it was talking about. But this is a combination of soft power for the domestic audience and for the international audience, which shows leadership, which shows China as the amiable partner that is there permanently. Isn't like the US or Europe that's going to come in with big money, you know, maybe with hedge fund money or private equity money, give billions and then pull out the next year. You know, this is permanent. And we're seeing this tested in the current crisis. Here's China making soothing noises. They're not necessarily going to solve all the all the debt repayment schedule that Africa and other poorer countries need to deal with, but they are there making very soothing noises. I have another meeting coming up. I really want to have another conversation with you, and we can do that anytime. I had one more comment I wanted to make, and it's a, a colorful example from Ethiopia. And the Chinese, they built this light rail system, which would be the only light rail that I know, especially in Eastern Africa. It's very evident, the stations that they built and the system, this is right through Addis. Have you seen it? No, I have not seen this, no. Okay, so you get there, and I looked up the schedule to see when they would be going, and I thought, wow, this is just what they need here. So I show up, and, and you're supposed to buy a ticket, I think either before you get on there, you're supposed to buy a ticket, but they have them coming every 10 minutes, I think, and there's only two cars on the train. There's just two cars, and you have probably hundreds of people that want to get 
on here and they get on and it's so packed that you cannot literally you couldn't get off if you wanted to at the, the next stop like you get in there and you cannot move it is so intensely packed and you also nobody can check your ticket while you're on there because you can't reach you can't move your arms right so i got in there and of course being the only white guy on the train or anything i had a, a couple of people that said look you could be in danger we're gonna watch out for you make sure nobody robs you or takes anything from your pockets and i appreciated that actually they were like we're gonna help you and then when they were like what is your stop and then when they heard what my stop was they all helped me out they're like white guy needs to get off this thing let's all make way for him help him out and then and they pushed me on through but it's such a, an example of completing the project as you committed to i'm going to build this railway and then we're going to give you a car or whatever yeah yeah here's what you got to do it's the simplest thing anybody who ever studied anything on economics could do this instead of two cars get four cars and instead of doing it every 10 minutes do it every five minutes then that thing that you built works very well as opposed to doesn't work at all because functionally you created something that works and that's taking responsibility i guess for and caring that it succeeds yeah and i think going back to the start of our conversation you know being on the ground seeing these kinds of infrastructure and how what works what doesn't work is it tells you a huge amount about the state of the economy the sustainability of what's going on the growth that you're seeing you know ethiopia is another great example like rwanda of very positive at least pre-covid expectations for growth uh, but a lot of it is state driven a lot of it is china driven some of it is indigenous from companies seeing an opportunity to challenge for example bangladesh in the textile industry and Addis has become a bit of a tech hub, as I'm sure you, you saw when you were there. But it is important to just go around and just experience that. I think, you know, away from transport, looking around shopping centers and seeing you often have these great shiny shopping malls that are built and you look around there and there's Gucci and there's Armani. And, but who's actually there in the shopping mall? Often you see very few people there and the ones that you do see, Westerners. In fact, another company that we've been working with in Cote d'Ivoire in the Ivory Coast took that, their property developer called AC Properties, and they took that as a gem of an idea to chain, to make sure that they, you know, they wanted to build retail that was going to be accessible for locals, um, that was going to be, they're selling food, was going to be more sanitary than on the street, was going to get people out of get people in an environment where they could experience some leisure activities good for kids and that sort of thing but they wanted to but they they were the first in africa to actually build this in a working class area of yopagon and it, it's called Yop, cosmos yopagon and it's been really really successful and you've got some of the big international stores but they have to cater to the local population so rather than importing french dishes or whatever you know different ingredients from abroad you know Know, they have to make sure they're also catering for the local population that means you get more ordinary groceries that people can access you know in another way they did it was to encourage those stallholders to come in from the streets and into the shopping mall and how they did that was to not give little stallholder a whole shop that they got to find a way to create the fill the shelves uh, for a two-month lease or something like that you know they had really short leases really tiny like a table but you can be inside the mall 
And that's the kind of development that when you're thinking about sustainability, whether it's from an environmental perspective or from a social perspective, it's really understanding is this, how inclusive is this infrastructure that I'm seeing? Right. Yeah, and there are so many ways to use technology now to kind of smooth the process over, to give more opportunities to, to people who are on the smaller produ production level and give them an opportunity to have their products in, in other places and to track the inventory and see what's going on. So many different developments, but we got to leave it here because I actually have another chat I got to have, but I want to talk to you more and uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And I hope that more people find you. How can they find you? Okay, so uh, newmarkets.media is the website. And we're at newmarketsmedia on Twitter. You're one of the best at this with the best profile. So I, I hope people follow you. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks so much, Brennan. Really enjoyed the chat and loving what you're doing as well. Pleasure. See you. Talk to you soon, I hope. Bye. For today's podcast, we'd like to thank our guest, Gavin Serkin, author of Frontier, exploring the top 10 emerging markets of tomorrow, and founder and CEO of New Markets Media and Intelligence. We'd also like to thank our musical guests, including Quantum Jump, who gave us our theme music, and a great array of musicians from around the world, including Joe Zawino of Cote d'Ivoire, Molatu Estatke of Ethiopia, Rukshan Perora of Sri Lanka, Mombasa of Kenya, Bikindi Simon of Rwanda, Salah Rageb and the Cairo Jazz of Egypt, Enver Ismailov of Ukraine, the Shanghai Jazz, El Ichun Li of Burma, the group Pressure from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Peter King of Nigeria, Nguyen Li of Vietnam, Aung Nguyen of Burma, Guy Warren of Ghana, and the NPN Boys of the Micronesian island of Pohnpei. And of course, our theme music, The Lone Ranger by Quantum Jump. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Blue Continent podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll subscribe and join us again. Tell others about us. This podcast is also available in a raw video format found on our Blue Continent Alliance Facebook page. If you'd like to see our mini documentaries from around the world, visit the Blue Continent YouTube page today. Thanks again for listening. Take care.